0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. doing my good friends? Thank you for stopping by again today. There probably ain't a whole lot in the world worse than being accused of something that you just didn't do, and not being able to prove your innocence to anybody on top of that. Let alone even getting them to listen to you to start with, due to all the media getting them together in lockstep and dogpiling on you once the story of how you supposedly did it breaks. Sit on down there, spell, and let me tell you one of those stories that don't just ice the cake, heck, it grabs it up and runs off with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Condy Dabney was a man looking for work when he showed up in the mining town of Coxton, Kentucky in January 1925. He's a fairly young feller of 31 with a wife and two children's support when he rolled into Coxton, which sits about as smack in Bloody Harlan County as it could sit. Why it's called Bloody Harlan County is yet to come at this time, or at the time this took place, but just to tell you, it was due to the Harlan County Mine Wars that took place in the 1930s. And I'll leave it at that for now, because uh, there just might be an episode in the works on that one to be coming up uh, fairly soon. Not knowing whether he could find work there in Coxton, he had left his family at home in Cold Creek, Tennessee. The Cold Creek is now known as Rocky Top, and yes, that would be the place that the 1967 hit song by the Osborne Brothers is named for. Mr. Dabney was used to working in the coal mines that, as we all know, were, were and still are scattered all over the Appalachians, so it didn't take him long to find work in a mine near Coxton. He established himself a reputation for being a quiet man with a good disposition who just didn't say a whole lot. He hadn't been in trouble with the police as far as anybody could tell. He just kept his head down and chugged along through his daily grind. Soon after he went to work, Roxy Baker, a 16-year-old Coxton girl, disappeared. The whole town was completely stumped as to what happened to her and all worked up to make sure somebody paid for it. Just before the grand jury convened to investigate her disappearance, wouldn't you know it, the three Coxton men who were to be weighed as suspects up and disappeared. Nobody could account for any of them. The grand jury, well, they didn't seem too concerned about them, so no indictment was returned. About the 1st of July, Mr. Dabney gave up his job in the mines because he'd been saving his money and bought an old ford. He then started running a taxicab business all around Coxton, who'd blame him. Mine work was then, and it still is extremely hard. He had been driving his taxicab for about a month when the town was well worked up again, this time over the fact that three women had disappeared. Two of them were married, and nothing was ever heard from them again. Just here one day and gone the next didn't take rocket surgery or brain science to figure out that somebody was up to no good. To compound it all, the third missing person was Mary Vickery, the 14-year-old daughter of E.C. Vickery, who was hotter than a firecracker on the 4th of July over it. Apparently, he had some kind of sway in the town because two men were pounced on, arrested, and dragged downtown. named William Middleton was the first to go, then by being Condy Dabney and all, the other was indeed Condy Dabney. grand jury pulled it all together again, and this time there were two suspects sitting right in front of them. Both were reported to have been seen with Mary for rides and giving them a ride about town in, in their newfangled automobiles. I guess any respectable man at that time ought to be riding a horse, huh? Despite the testimony of witnesses, the grand jury again failed to issue an indictment. So Mr. Middleton and Condy were released and following the investigation that failed to turn up any other pertinent suspects. It certainly looked as if the grand jury was made up of people who needed some proof if they were going to put a man on trial for his life, don't it? Now there were a st- and still are a plethora of mine shafts in Coxton. Many of them uh, were already tapped out and abandoned back then. It was common knowledge that these abandoned shafts were used for hiding places for moonshine or, even better yet, a nice inconspicuous place for running off a gallon of twelve through your own still. United States Marshal Adrian Metcalf received himself a tip that was a hidden still in one of these shafts on Ivy Hill near Coxton and on the 21st of October he marched himself up there to sniff it out. He said about poking around in the shafts in the area, and while doing so, Marshal Metcalf came to an old abandoned booger hollow shaft. While stumbling around in the dark there, he nearly fell over a pile of rocks in one of the tunnels, and near there he found some clothing. And that got his red flags going. He found that just a bit suspicious, so he called in some backup. They all prodded around until they had dug up the body of what they thought to be a girl all wrapped up in black winter coat. The only things in the hole with her were pink bloomers, a hat, shoes, and some stockings. The body was badly decomposed, but they felt sure that it was a girl probably between 12 and 14 years old. They instantly remembered the case of missing Mary Vickery, who was by this time had been missing about two months. The discovery of the body sent the whole town back into a tizzy and it all culminated with the demand that the Vickery case be reopened. This without anybody even know who they'd found yet. Most folks already thought that the body found in the old booger hollow shaft was Mary's and weren't about to listen to any reason anyway. As the weeks pressed on, quite a web of stories made the rounds through the town for for some reason, things started to point directly at poor old Condy Dabney. This same reason mentioned in the previous statement seems to all be traced back to a birth of better than you named Marie Jackson, who finally, after saying too much to go back now, became the principal witness against Mr. Dabney. The stories were so convincing that the Kentucky authorities went to look for Mr. Dabney, who was, uh, well, he was gone. That made him even more convinced that they were on the right track. What they didn't know was that back in September, Conde had left Coxton to return to his family in Coal Creek. He had learned that one of his children was sick, and for that reason, he wanted to find work near Coal Creek. Folks, back then, anybody that was sick, it was taken seriously, and for a good reason. A whole lot of times, folks who got sick, they, they didn't recover, they just died from it. Having finally found him, Police twice visited enemy's home in Cold Creek to question him, but each time they returned apparently impressed by the story of his innocence. Even though he knew that the folks of Coxton were out for blood, oh, well, he went back in March. Soon after that, or right after he got there, he was dragged back in before the grand jury, and on the 18th of March, an indictment charging him with the murder of Mary Victory was returned. So much for trying to clear his name, he must have thought as they dragged him to trial. (laughs) The biggest red flag in the whole thing was the way that the body was identified. Mary's father was certain that the body found in the old mine was that of his daughter. At the trial, he stated that there was no doubt in his mind concerning the identification. He told of going to the mine after the body had been found and picking up a ring. The ring, he said, was one. He bought Mary in Knoxville, Tennessee for her birthday back in June 7th. Asked if he had ever run away from, or she'd ever run away from home. He said no, and denied the suggestion that Mary didn't get along with her stepmother mother very well. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. On cross-examination, Mr. Vickery testified that he didn't attend the funeral of his own daughter and that he allowed the county to bury Mary. Pressed for an explanation, he hesitated before he replied. And Mr. Dabney's attorney, G.G. Rawlings, suggested, You didn't know that was your girl, did you? That is what you started to say, wasn't it? At the present time, I wasn't perfectly sure, Mr. Vickery said, for the love of Mike. Then came the star witness, Marie Jackson, whose twisted tale of horror led to the whole thing and on who the state had leaned heavily to obtain indictment. She testified under oath, mind you, that about 7 o'clock in the morning, Mary Vickery disappeared. She and Mary stopped Mr. Dabney's taxicab cab as it came up to them and on a road just outside Coxton. Marie told Mr. Dabney to drive him to town where they arrived at about 10 o'clock, a distance of about four miles. That adds up, don't it? Well, Mr. Dabney dropped them off at Marla Restaurant, where he, she got out. Mr. Dabney then drove away with Mary and didn't come back until one o'clock. When he came back, all three of them drove out to Ivy Hill. Mary sitting in the front seat with Condy. Once at the hill, they got out of the car and sat down a, on a log in, in a clearing. After that, they had a little talked and, uh, and sat around a few more minutes and that's when Mr. Dabney told her to go around behind the hill he wanted to talk to Mary by himself she said that she went away and sat down in a place from where she could sit there and spy on him. and that's when she saw Mr. Dabney become a cad and hug a girl who protested so Mr. Dabney picked up a stick and whacked her across the head with it Mary fell to the ground and she watched as Mr. Dabney attacked her Mr. Dabney then walked around the hill, came back, and finally found her sitting there in terror from what she had witnessed. He told her that if she ever opened her mouth about any of that, he would find somebody that would burn her at the stake if he couldn't do it himself. She said Condy then dragged Mary's body to the mine while she ran for it. She then said that she met Mr. Dabney the very next day and rode with him to Pineville on her way home. She didn't mention the killing because she didn't want to be burned at the stake, she said. What a story that was, and the jury ate it all up, every word of it, just like Christmas candy. In fact, it didn't seem that they heard anybody else's testimony at all. After that, three girls, known as the Stewart sisters and Miss Smith, testified that they saw Mr. Dabney and Mary Vickery between 2 and 4 on the afternoon. She disappeared, and that they weren't together. Stuart's sisters said that they were walking along the road with Mary and their grandmother about two o'clock when Mr. Dabney came along with all together a different woman in his car and asked them if they needed a ride. You know, like you do when you're a taxicab owner. They politely refused, but soon after that, William Middleton and Otis King came along, and all three of the girls rode with them for a while. There. Two sisters finally leaving Mary in the car talking with Mr. Middleton and Mr. King. Of all things, Mr. Middleton testified to the same thing. He said that the time was about four o'clock. To beat that, Mr. King said that he didn't know Mary Vickery at the time, but that he later found out that that was her, and then he'd been in the car and he'd driven her around. All of his testimony accounted for Mary's time between 2 and 4 o'clock of the afternoon she supposedly disappeared and directly contradicted the testimony of Marie Jackson, who said that she and Mary and Mr. Dabney were on Ivy Hill from 1 till nearly dark when Mr. Dabney snapped on Mary. Finally, still thinking that he might be able to fix it all, Mr. Dabney took the stand in his own defense. He told the story of his movements from July 25th 1925 to march 20 1926 he said that he didn't remember ever carrying mary Vickery in his taxi cab but that he might have done so he carried many people and didn't know them all he said he knew Marie jackson and had drove her around with several men he said that he didn't know where marley restaurant was exactly and that he had never been on ivy hill period He called Marie Jackson's testimony a complete lie from start to finish and that (laughs) he said that he left Coxton because he received a letter saying his little daughter was sick and feared for her life. When he got home to Cold Creek, he worked at several jobs during the late fall and winter and was always available to police officers anytime they called. He said that he had been arrested on suspicion in the Vickery case but was later released. He told the court that he didn't refuse to return to Coxton and that he had denied that he had returned in March only after hearing that the grand jury declined to indict him. He insisted that he was innocent and knew nothing whatever about the disappearance of Mary Vickley, Vickery. And, uh, yeah, it's a likely story, isn't it, folks? Despite it all... On March 31st, 1926, the jury returned a verdict of guilty and recommended life imprisonment. Of course, a motion for a new trial was overruled. On that same day, Mr. Dabney was sentenced to be confined for life at hard labor in the state penitentiary at Frankfort. An appeal was filed as Mr. Dabney was without funds and had to take a pauper's oath. A transcript of the testimony was printed at the state's exempt and uh, filed with his... Bill of Exceptions on May 19th. In other words, his appeal was filed by the state. His appeal to the Kentucky Court of Appeals was pending almost a year later when on a night in March Patrolman George S. Davis noticed you know, by chance the name of Mary Vickery on the register of a hotel in Williamsburg, Kentucky. He asked about it and was told that Mary Vickery had lived in the hotel at one time. He was told that she had gone across the Cumberland River to visit friends. He soon found her and recognized her at once, and the story she told Officer Davis was quite different from the web of lies weaved by Mary Jackson and spread around town in the court system like a peanut butter on a sandwich. Mary said that uh, she left Coxton on August 23rd, 1925 with $5 in her pocketbook because she couldn't stand to be around her stepmother. She had gone on the train and after taking a taxi cab ride, she didn't know if the driver was Condy Dabney or not. As a matter of fact, she didn't even know anybody named Marie Jackson. From Coxton, she had to went first to Livingston, where she worked as a waitress, then to Bera, where she worked as a maid. From there, she moved to Mount Vernon and finally to Cincinnati, where she found work in the wool mill. She admitted that while in Cincinnati, she'd heard something about somebody had been convicted of murdering her and was told that she should go home but it was some time before she finally figured out that she probably ought to go no need to get in a rush now huh she told officer davis that she was on her way back to coxton to straighten things out her return to coxton led to an immediate pardon for mr dabney and the appointment of g j jarvis as a special investigator to inquire into the conduct of marie jackson Well, it's about time. And being that a tiger can't change its stripes, Marie offered even more sensational stories about the Vickery case, as Special Prosecutor Jarvis is set laughing at her. Mr. Jarvis was quoted in one newspaper account as being the opinion that Marie Jackson testified against Mr. Dabney just to get the $500 reward that had been offered. But there were other accounts that say Marie wanted Mr. Dabney to leave his wife and children, and marry her. And he wasn't about to do that, and so she testified against him. As a result of Mr. Jarvis' investigation into the Jackson-Vickery case, Marie was convicted of false swearing, and on the same day, March 27th, Mary Vickery was married to C.E. Dempsey by Reverend H.C. Davis of the Baptist Church of God in Coxton. No, Marie wasn't invited to that. She was busy. Marie was fined, uh, guess what? $500 for her trouble and went on about the business of, of being a tail weaver as tail weavers do. Condy Dabney went home to his wife and children and stayed the heck out of Coxton. Well, at least for a while anyway. Well, I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to follow us, please. If you like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to The Deviant Report, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts right here at Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Just run on over to Spotify or Anchor.fm and they'll fix you right up. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery and legend. I will see you then.